NFL insider Miles Simmons from Pro Football Talk joins us now. Five o'clock hours here. We're an hour away from the Kevin Kruger radio show debut for 23-24. And then the opener is tomorrow, 7 o'clock tip, over at the Thomas and Mac. But uh, good times coming here for the Kruger radio show. Preview of the season, the roster, conversation with uh, one Justin Webster. So good stuff. John Sandler, Kevin Kruger, Curtis Terry will be here along with our buddy uh, Nick working the board. Miles Simmons, how are you, buddy? I am doing all right, gentlemen. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, I'm going to ask everyone in the room, do you guys like daylight savings time? I'm, I'm, not, with... I'm not pro or con on it necessarily. I like the day of when you get an extra hour, but it's kind yeah. of stupid that it gets dark early. Yeah. Miles? Uh, that's, that's pretty much how I feel about it. I mean, you know, it, it was convenient for me on Saturday night because I was visiting with uh, – some family in San Diego needed to drive back that night so I could work all Sunday. So I did appreciate the extra hour uh, before getting up to watch the Chiefs and, and Dolphins. So, but yeah, I mean, like now, it, you know, it's it's five o'clock and it's almost dark. Like I don't I don't love that. I, I could do without that. I will say I never heard of it before, but two different people told me in the last couple of days that. They always get depressed around this time of year because it's darker for so much longer. I've never thought of that. Really? Yeah. Uh, oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I remember going to high school. It would be like, you know, I would leave um, for school and it would be dark and I would come home on the bus after, you know, rehearsal or whatever it was in uh, the fall and, and winter. And it also would be dark and it would be like, man, I never see the house in the daytime. It's kind of depressing. So. Excuse me, I guess that's just a thing growing up living in Ohio. It's <laughs> called seasonal depression. It is, yeah. I, I've seen some, you know, uh, Sopranos memes with Tony Soprano lately that's like, uh, getting ready to be on my Tony Soprano seasonal depression. <laughs> uh, should Jets fans have seasonal depression watching Zach Wilson? <laughs> Oh, what a transition. What a pro you are, Adam. You. Yes, Thank they you. should. And they should. it should not just be about Zach Wilson, though, right? I mean, like, it, this is an organizational problem that they have at this point. Like, it's not just Zach Wilson. And I'm not acquitting Zach Wilson of anything. If you've seen what I said on Twitter last night about Zach Wilson, I am tired of this, oh, we've got to give Zach Wilson some credit or cut Zach Wilson some slack. Like, like no, he's a, he's a professional. He was a number two overall pick. And and he's in his third year, and he can't protect the ball in the freaking pocket. I'm not giving him credit for anything. This is ridiculous. But also, I'm not acquitting Nathaniel Hackett for not being a good offensive coordinator, which, I mean, oh, who would have thought that a person who was so bad as a head coach and play caller that they had to bring in somebody to run the clock for him and tell him what to do with time management would be bad at designing an offense that would not just be for Aaron Rodgers. Hmm, can't imagine that that would be the case. Case. And also their offensive line is a mess. So yeah, there's plenty to be depressed about if you're a Jets fan because there's nothing good that's happening on offense. Defensively, yeah, they're pretty darn good. But offensively, they're crap. Who was that an impression of? I don't know. Just it's just some a or some <laughs> jerk. jerk that was uh, <laughs> on Twitter. 
yesterday and I'm sick of it because it's like, I, I don't know what it is about Zach Wilson that just makes everybody lose their freaking mind, right? Is it because he's a baby faced white boy that we all have to be like, oh my gosh, well, he's trying. I mean, who does this for Mac Jones? Nobody. Nobody's doing it for Justin Fields. Certainly nobody did it for Trey Lance. I mean, it's ridiculous. They're all a part of the same draft class and Zach Wilson's the only one we somehow have to feel bad for for some reason or another. I don't get it and Miles, I'm sick of it. You got, you got By so the way, Miles is so nailing this because I'm so tired of everyone apologizing for him and especially national guys. And I, you know what? When I watch the game every week, that's what I think too. I'm like, enough of this white boy. <laughs> I actually thought Miles, Miles was so worked up. He almost said something he shouldn't have said. We call I know, that, I've we, never done that. We call that pulling a Max Crosby. It's <laughs> <laughs> a new term. I don't even know where it came from. Uh, somebody, yeah. somebody told me to say yeah. that. Did you, yeah, you guys I, didn't write about that, did you? No, I didn't write about that. Look, man, you know, and Adam, you know this as, as well as anybody. I mean, I had flashbacks to 2019 last week. When all of a sudden I get a text from my buddy, oh man, Raiders did something crazy and it's a weird time of day and I'm like not really prepared to be doing work and all of a sudden I've got to spring into action because the Raiders decided to fire their head coach and GM at 10 o'clock Pacific time on Halloween night and at, P and at Pro Football Talk, I'm the only one who's awake because everybody else is in the central or eastern time zone and the funny first part, I mean, I was about to be on uh, PFT Live the next morning, so I should have sensibly been asleep as well, but I was not. And so, yeah, it did flash me back to my days at the RJ and Antonio Brown just doing crazy stuff where all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, Miles got to get something going again. <laughs> 38 different events that happened with the Raiders last week. It was fun. It was a good time uh, had by all. Uh, real quick, I just saw someone on Twitter, so I wanted to say it. Uh, you said Sean McDermott passed the down eight test. I, I, my new thing on Twitter now is every time a coach makes a proper analytics decision and nobody complains about it because it works it works out i'm just going to point out that nobody's complaining like oh you should do that yeah yeah sean mcdermott makes the right decision it works out so nobody says a word if it didn't work out people would have lost their minds why well, uh how are people this simple-minded I, I, well, I mean, that's that's a deeper question about Americans. But I, I mean, I I believe I tweeted that even before the result of the play. Of course. And I because I I mean, I like to think that I'm a smart person about certain things. Right. But and like that's one of them. And it, it's not just do you get the result that you want in going for two there? It's do you go for two in general? So, I mean, that to me, when I saw that Josh Allen, you know, had the two fingers up and they, I think, showed Sean McDermott on, on the screen as well. And he had two fingers up. It's like, oh, that's passing the down eight. Test. That's what the test is. The test is do you go for it or not? Not does the result happen? Yeah, and for those that don't, that maybe are lost in what we're talking about here, if a team is down 14 points late in the game, there is really not a there's not a decision to be made. You go for two if you score a touchdown. Mm -hmm. It's so Correct. mathematically sound. It's so beyond argument at this point. It's very very obvious. It's maybe the easiest of the analytics decisions that are somewhat controversial uh, to make, and some coaches still don't do it. And Sean McDermott did it. So it didn't necessarily work. I mean, because they got it to six, they never got the the chance to to take the lead. But at least the touchdown would have won for them. Like that's an easy decision to make. But for some reason, people can't get it through their heads and figure it out. Including many coaches, which is wild. But those are decisions, or those are questions we can talk about uh, at another time. Uh, 
we talked yesterday a little bit about the who's the best team in the AFC at this point. Uh, I think the debate should be who's the second best team in the AFC because to me, it's the Ravens and then everybody else. It, it, it is, and yeah, I think the important caveat is at this point, and, yeah. and this is something that Peter King and I were talking about on the Peter King podcast, which you can get, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, and also on the NBC, or excuse me, NFL on NBC YouTube page. But I, I think that right now, yeah, it's definitely the Ravens because when you have two division contenders in the Detroit Lions and the Seattle Seahawks that come into your building and you beat them by a combined score of, I believe, seventy-five to nine. That says something about how good you are, right? The Ravens are playing as good football as anybody, and they haven't as many primetime games or standalone games. So we're not. I, I think in the national conversation, they're not necessarily as much uh, there as the Chiefs or the Dolphins or the Eagles or, of course, the Cowboys are always going to be a part of that conversation. Or the Niners also in the NFC. But just based on what they've done and the teams that they've beaten and how soundly they've done it, and as well as they're playing on defense, right, and as well as they're playing on offense too, there's not much question in my mind that you're right, Adam. It, it is Baltimore in the AFC and then kind of everybody else. And so we'll see how that evolves and how that changes. I tend to think that Cincinnati is either going to win the AFC North or just narrowly miss out on that division because this is what Cincinnati does, right? They start out a little bit slow and then they just seem to find themselves and then they keep it rolling and they keep it rolling and they keep it rolling. And, you know, for whatever reason, they've got Buffalo's number, but, you know, they go to San Francisco or Santa Clara, as the case may be, and beat the 49ers as soundly as they did. Like, that tells you a lot, I think, about where the Bengals are and where they can get to. And so I, I expect that the Bengals will be in the AFC Championship game somehow, some way. Miles Simmons for Football Talk and the Peter King Podcast uh, joins us on the show. Uh, there is, a, I think, a small news story in the grand scheme of things, but for you... It's kind of a, a a life marking moment that Carson Wentz signs with the Rams. I mean, this oh, has gosh. to take you back. Oh, uh, it really does, man. And like, this is something where you know the group chats of people you used to work with they start firing up because it was you know I don't was that seven years ago. Time has no meaning anymore. But in the spring of 2016. So I was working for the Rams at the time. They had just moved from St. Louis. And so as a group, we were staying as the internal media team with the football operations at this Oxnard Residence Inn, which is actually where the Cowboys have their training camp every summer. So that is part of why it was sort of this ready-made situation for the Rams to kind of come in there, use that for uh, everything in the spring and the off-season program and the draft and things like that. So... After the Rams traded up to number one overall, they had Jared Goff and Carson Wentz both come in and do like, you know, a, a visit, right? Like one of their top 30 visits. And so in that process, they had the internal media team, including myself, do interviews with Carson Wentz and Jared Goff. And so, it, yeah, it, it was one of those things today where I have a couple friends that are still working for the Rams and a, a couple people that have now gone on and done bigger and better things. We're all texting each other like, holy crap, like this is one of these ridiculous things. And like sharing photos of, you know, the, the one time that we all sat down with kind of Carson Wentz and we're talking about it. And, and the thing that also got brought up is that, you know, 
I was never told directly who the Rams were going to draft at that time, but it was pretty clear it was going to be Jared Goff. And the one thing that got back to me from a secondhand conversation was Jeff Fisher, obviously the Rams head coach at the time, said, I think Carson will be good, but I think Jared is going to be special. And so it's not necessarily that Jeff Fisher was wrong. I mean, Jared Goff did do some special things in 17 and 18 for the Los Angeles Rams, just, you know, with a different head coach that was not Jeff Fisher. What does the signing mean? Uh, not very much, I don't think. I mean, I think it means that the Rams know if something else happens to Matthew Stafford that Brett Rippon is not going to be able to get it done. And the unfortunate thing that has happened with the Rams this year is they drafted Stetson Bennett in the fourth round in order to be this long-term backup for Matthew Stafford. And for whatever reason, and they have not disclosed it, um, Stetson Bennett is now on the non-football injury list. And Sean McVay kind of alluded to the fact last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, that it's kind of more likely than not that Stetson Bennett will not be back with the team this year. So it's sort of like what they did last year when they brought in Baker Mayfield. You know, you're kind of taking a flyer on a guy who's got experience. And that's sometimes the most important thing that you can have in a backup is experience and just running different offenses. Saw today it was reported, too, that uh, Wentz has been working with John Gruden to try to improve. And Sean McVay, of course, a disciple of John Gruden. So you know, has some maybe inside intel there. Um, and so I guess it's one of those things where you bring in Wentz, maybe it works out that he can be a backup for you longer term. Um, maybe it doesn't, but you at least get him in your building kind of on a tryout basis, a long-term tryout basis, and you see, maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't. Um, but yeah, I think it's more or less that. Because also Sean McVay has talked about the fact that he thinks that Matthew Stafford will be back after the Rams by this week, which is a good thing because if Matthew Stafford's not out there, then the Rams are not scrappy. They are not fun. They're just kind of bad. Miles, I, I, I like that take. I like that take. I don't understand oh. why everyone has to be so negative on quarterbacks as if they can never be rehabbed. Um, your point on Baker Mayfield is good. Like, he's... Oh. A decent starting quarterback in the NFL. McVay took him under his wing and maybe rehabbed him a little bit. Do you guys know how old Carson Wentz is? Can we guess 29? I think he's in his, like, 30, 31, because he was old he's when he 31. came out. Oh. Yeah. He's 31. Yeah. That's not old, which leads me into the question of why are so many teams behind their starting quarterback just giving up on the position? I don't get what's going on around the National Football League where we're we're watching guys who clearly right now are often not ready to play or are done. What's happening, Miles? What's your view on the league and the quarterback position? Well, I think it's a couple of different things. I mean, with Carson Wentz, it's not that people are giving up on him for no reason, right? I mean, Carson Wentz is not a starting caliber quarterback in this league anymore. He's just not. And so uh, he's better for, than Zach Wilson. Well, I mean, that's a low bar, right? Zach Wilson's not a starting caliber quarterback in this league either. And I don't well, think but I'm it, but breaking But it does news. get us back to the point that we've got a lot of quarterbacks around the league who are not starting, not starting caliber, and Carson Wentz has been sitting on the street. I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I think from the standpoint of if you bring in Carson Wentz and you're the Jets, 
<laughs> I hate to use this particular word because I know how pejorative it is, but does it become a distraction, right? And frankly, I think the Jets were wrong to keep Zach Wilson around in the first place because you traded for his replacement and then you're going to say, oh, well, let's just keep him because, uh, you know, maybe after, you know, getting some seasoning from Aaron Rodgers, he's going to turn into something that we already believe that he isn't. Otherwise, we wouldn't bring in Aaron Rodgers in the first place. So, like, that doesn't really make any sense. But I think part of it, Stephen, this is the biggest thing, at least in my opinion, is contracts, right? If you are a rookie and you are a first-round pick and they have they get to see what you have, you have about three years to really show what it is that you can and cannot do. And frankly, if you are a number one to number five overall pick, you probably have about two, right? Because if you're not showing at least some really good incremental progress by the end of your second year, then they really need to start thinking about replacing you in year three because your fifth year option is completely guaranteed and they've got to decide on that in the spring before year four. So it's all about the contract structure. And if you are not good enough to get that second contract, by the time you are in your third year, then there are going to be some real questions. Right? You go into year four and it's kind of like, well, this is it. And if you don't do it, then they know they need to replace you. And it's because if you get the quarterback wrong, then the coach is going to get fired and the GM is going to get fired. So that's part of it. I mean, I, I, I understand why teams cannot just wait around for the quarterback to look competent anymore, especially when you see that there are guys like a CJ Stroud that come in and light the place on fire. Right? I mean, that second half that he had on Sunday against Baker Mayfield, speaking of, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers was as good of a quarterback performance, I think, as you might see in this league, honestly. Will Levis comes in and he's playing, you know, in his first start. And yeah, they had the bye week to kind of prepare him, but then he has to go on a short week to Pittsburgh and they're playing renegade. And it's, oh, mom, I'm in fear for my life. And they're spinning those towels, right? And he steps up in the pocket and he delivers a throw and he shuts up the crowd. Like these are the kinds of things that you can see rookie quarterbacks do. And so that's why it's like, I know that sometimes you have guys that are late bloomers. But based on what the contract structure is in the NFL right now, you cannot wait on these guys. You just can't. You have to be able to show that you can do something. Is it, well, Simmons is, it, is oh, up on Cofield and Company here on a Tuesday. Of course, he's from Pro Football Talk. And you can see him on Peacock. Adam Hill is in the Finley Toyota Studios. DeMond is there as well. Uh, Miles, do you remember um, some recent fails you had in IDing people that uh, – Joe Cool, Adam Hill knew about, and maybe you didn't, like Sexy Red. <laughs> yes, I, and there was somebody else that you brought up that, um, a week or two ago that I had also never heard of. Uh, who was that? That was Blueface. Yeah, Blueface. Thank you. Yeah, I, yeah, Blueface. What, what about uh, Sexy Red and Blueface? Co- and Cofield yeah. didn't know Dreams and Nightmares. Oh, that's Meek Mill. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Cofield I, I didn't, didn't know, know that one. Um, Miles, do you know who Babyface is? Yes, I do know who Babyface is. <laughs> Come on now. Okay. Whip appeal. Um, Does everyone? A tweet that a tweet that came out of the beginning of the week. Um, it was a beautiful, spectacular, tear-jerking, unique rendition of our beloved anthem. It's such a gorgeous song for a great nation. The singer's name is Babyface. I have not heard of him. Uh, but if he has an album, I am getting it. What a voice. What a voice. Who said that? That was from... Uh, SI, one of SI's uh, top writers, Hondo Carpenter. Uh, we were debating oh. yesterday, is Hondo going with a bit here that he doesn't know who Babyface is or what? Uh, I've got bit. no comment on that. It's not a bit. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> there seems to be a lot of no comments on this subject. Adam Hill, do we do we uh, do we even bother tackling the uh, the appropriation? That I happened? mean, or shall we stay away from that as well? Well, there's some behind the now. Scenes. I need to know. There's some behind the scenes stuff that I can't get into. That was a fallout from this. Oh, get but it. I think, after. I think okay, we should we get not, into it. I, I think we should get into it though. Okay, um, Demond, do we have the sound of, of the uh, the subject and the question that he asked Antonio Pierce? Here's the full question, Coach. I'm going to ask a personal question, but. You got this job because you're good, not your color. But you referenced yesterday the president, the GM, and yourself as a father to a child <clears throat> who is black and Filipino. This is a trailblazing organization. Do you ever stop and think about the young ones that are coming that you're the first as a group, as an entity, as being trailblazers? No, no doubt. Okay. Um, now let's, let's wow. clear up some confusion there. The way that was asked, Antonio Pierce has a black child who's, who's half black, half Filipino, or Hondo Carpenter has a child? Well, it, Hondo. Hondo. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, that's not the way that uh, that came off. I know. Yep. As Interesting. a father to a child <clears throat> who is black and Filipino. <laughs> Bro. Come on, insisting on playing it again. Okay. Uh huh. Um, what did, go what ahead. Did he, what did he go say? I didn't, it, I didn't even hear the question. What was the? What did he say? What As he a say? father to okay. a child <laughs> who is black and Filipino. I guess the question is: is that is that necessary as part of the question? Could the question just be asked? Uh, no, that does not seem necessary as part of the question. And uh, no. In any uh, way, shape, or form, it does not. Uh, and also, that sort of question was asked and answered based on the other press conference that I watched. Asked the day before. So, yeah. Uh, um, interesting. You yeah. guys got some interesting stuff going on over there, man. <laughs> do. do you do. miss it? You um, miss the Raiders radio, media room, Miles? Kind of, yeah, I do. I mean, like, I think that last week would have been a really interesting week to be in there, you know? Yeah, you're not kidding. <laughs> Seems like it. Seems like it. Uh, Miles Simmons is with us. Cofield and Company here on this Tuesday. Um, I'm always I'm looking for people who have old souls, and I, I feel like Miles, you, you might have an old soul, and you might be one of the, the few people in this country who's still kind of hanging on, and and you like baseball. Am I wrong on that? Uh, I like it a little bit. I, I will okay. watch it. Uh, I watch the Guardians because I'm from Cleveland. Okay. Um, I'm just, I want I want you in on this conversation, and I'm going to preface this by saying um, I have a third cousin um, who is 81 years old who married a Japanese woman. Okay. Um, so let me you're, start. You're qualified to speak on this thing. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Adam sent over a story about Ichiro, and that Ichiro took batting practice at 50 years old and broke an apartment window. And I started thinking about one of the debates we've had for a while, and that is about Otani and his place in the game now and his place in the history of the game. I actually I want to throw this one out there, and you know, hopefully Miles cares about this. What if I said the two? best baseball players in the history of the game are both Japanese. Otani and number two is Ichiro. That's interesting. I mean, I think that that's kind of hard to say. I mean, Mike Trout also is way up there for me. I mean, you know, you also have Barry Bonds and uh, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and I know I'm just kind of rattling off home run hitters, but Cal Ripken Jr. Like guys that are really, really important to the game. Um, you know, like uh, Bob Gibson, you know, Bob Feller, and again, I'm Jackie Robinson, and again, I'm just sort of naming names, but like those are yeah, yeah. people who are, 
in the annals of baseball history, and I think that it's for a reason. I, I think that you could make the argument, certainly, that Otani and Ichiro are two of the top ten, if not top seven, top five players in baseball history, if we're going to talk about wow. that. I mean, like, in, in Major League history. I mean, nobody's ever done what Otani's done, right? At, at least not in, you know, uh, years and years. And years. I mean, not in anybody's lifetime that's really seen something like this. So... That's part of it. I'm, I'm interested to see if he goes to an actual contender, and I really hope he does because I think one of the shames of the last decade plus in baseball is that Mike Trout has only played in three playoff games and he lost all three. And it's been since 2014. We've never seen him in a postseason game. And that, to me, is I ridiculous. I don't know. That's an absolute failure of the Angels organization. I don't know if I can trust your opinion until you state the races of all of your family members, Miles. Um, well, uh, <laughs> as the son of a black woman doctor and the grandson of two black people, okay. one from Virginia, one from Georgia, is that you. enough? I trust you. We don't need to do this. That was sarc- that was sarcastic. Please. What are you talking about? I think everybody, you're a, you're a wonderful human being. Every statement, you need to preface it. Yeah, no. for, for dealing with our child busting, everyone out there, make sure you read uh, on Pro Football Talk, and also follow Miles up on Twitter, Miles A. Simmons. Miles, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, gentlemen. Have a good week. Thanks, man. There he is. Um, I want to build on the story on the way back real quick, and we got to close out with some football and a little college basketball as well. It's Cofield and Company here on this Tuesday. I'm actually live at Parkway Tavern. You can come on down. Kevin Kruger Radio shows up in about 35 minutes, $2 Miller Lights during the show, and the coach is going to intro the audience uh, here and on radio to a lot of the new players and talk about expectations and we'll have a conversation with one of the players as well. So uh, get on down here to Parkway Tavern District in Henderson or make sure you're listening at 6 o'clock to ESPN 1100, 100.9 FM. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio on ESPN Las Vegas. So, Adam Hill, the Ichiro story, where was he actually hitting that he broke an apartment window? Uh, he's 50 years old now. He's, 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 he's taking BP. What was he doing? Uh, he was in Japan. It looked like he was with some sort of a youth program or something. There was a bunch of kids around, and uh, somebody was throwing to him. Look, maybe a high school kid was pitching. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he crushed it. He leaned into it. Like, he swung. We always said one of the things that I've always talked about, and I know a lot of I'm not the only one. That he could have hit for power if he wanted to, like he he clearly was trying to be a you know a guy that hit for average. He would swing for home runs when the team needed it, but he could have hit a lot more home runs if he wanted to. But he had a swing that was for base hits, and you know he was maybe the best I've ever seen at it. Uh, but he definitely had a different type of swing, so he was definitely swinging for the fences uh, with the in this video, and he absolutely crushed it. Uh, to right field and just went right through an apartment window and everybody's kind of going crazy and loving it. He gives this little, oops, did I do that? Look like a Steve Urkel uh, look on his face. Uh, but he knew what he was doing. It was it was just crushed. I feel like if your apartment window gets broken by an Ichiro home run, you got to be cool with it. You got like, to get a you, you know, have to be cool like with a it. signed photo, put it up near the window. I think you got to play. You got to lean into that. You can't be mad. Interesting. Interesting. But, you know, when you sent that over, it got me thinking about Ichiro and also right now what Otani's doing. Uh, 
See, you agree that there's an argument to be made that Otani, you know, as long as he bounces back from his his tear, um, hell, even if he just if he, even if he comes back and he never pitches again, and he's a 45 homer guy for the next 10 years, he's arguably the greatest baseball player in history because of what he did pitching, even in a short stint. Yeah, I think it's it's tough to argue that he's not. But who who who's I, Who's considered the best player ever? I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to put anybody over him. Well, because he, you know Babe Ruth pitched, but he didn't pitch and not hit like at that. the same time. Yeah, and he really like pitched. That. He really pitched. He really pitched for a short period of time. So I'll do. I always mock on this, but you know, I, I started a long time ago in the Sports Talk Radio, and I was listening even before that. So I'll do the 1997 Sports Talk Radio. A quick debate here, right? So one, I got to mention with Otani. Remember all the the panic. And the hot takes from people when the uh, the elbow tear, the news came out, and people were like, oh, my God, his value is going to plummet now. He's not going to get the $500 million. And I said at the time, yes, he is. And then look at what happened during the playoffs, right? One, the Yankees didn't make it, so they're freaking out. Two, the Dodgers got bounced early. Uh, we know the Giants could be in on Otani. He's going to get the money. He's going – believe me, he's going to get the money. And then – when he's in front of more cameras and playing in the postseason, that's going to take him to another level in terms of the respect and his legacy. But when you sent over the Ichiro thing, I thought about it. Do you know how old Ichiro was when he got to the major leagues? Was he 29? He was 27. Okay. He was in the Japanese major leagues at 20. So think about how much of his prime here. Yeah, he could, he could have put up monstrous numbers. Yes, and he did. Yeah. In Japan. I actually, and I'll, this is another thing I love to do, is take, say, NBA players and Major League Baseball players and give them a career pre-1960, right? And just physically how much you know bigger and better they are and what they deal with from a speed and athleticism standpoint. If I gave you Ichiro... Pre-60s, and he actually gets to play 20 years in the major leagues. What do you think he does? Against that pitching? We, what do you think he does, like, from, whatever, 1945 to 65? And, and in the mid-60s, you know, that's pitching started to dominate a little bit. He would have been an older guy. Yeah, but for, say, 45 to 65, what do you think he would have done? I mean, you're going to say that I'm being ridiculous, but I'm. this is not. I think he hits 450. Um, you think he hits 450 for his career? Yeah. I had him at, I had him at 385. Yeah, I think it's 450. And I had him. I had 385 for his career, 400 home runs, 5,000 hits. By the way, he finished with 4,367 hits between Japan and the major leagues. So 385, 400 home runs, 5,000 hits, 1,000 stolen bases. He had seven, uh, 17 stolen bases in both leagues. Yeah, I think you're almost conservative. That, that, that's why a couple minutes ago I said, arguably – the two best players in the history of baseball worldwide are Ichiro and Otani. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not going to argue it. I. I think it's. I mean, I know the best players ever are now, uh, for sure. They're better right. than any player that played in the past. But yeah, I mean, th- those guys are so you know above and Otani for sure. What he's done on both sides. So we got the Kruger show coming up in about 25 minutes. Demo, uh, here. 
I'm sorry, Steve. I didn't hear what you said there. You cut out. <laughs> sorry. Uh, were you able to pull the uh, the Odom and the Kruger stuff here? Uh, no, I was not. Okay. Uh, first, Ball let's talk about Barry Odom and the short and the short week, Adam Hill. Um, how much of a factor do you think it's going to be in prepping for this game on Friday against Wyoming? Uh, Barry Odom is a very, very good football coach who's been around. I have to assume they started before uh, last week's game, uh, that they started putting some things together knowing that it was going to be a short week. So I don't think it'll be much of a factor at all. I think they were uh, they got a head start. They knew what was going to happen on Saturday. They knew they could start preparing and looking ahead, and they did. All right. This, to me, is one of the ultimate tests of the season, and so is Air Force, because what they've done so far is really good. You can see there's an upward trend in a lot of areas on the field. Uh, you agree with that on Mayava? Yeah. What do you see now with Mayava that was, is better than when he first started playing? I just think he's more comfortable. I think I mean that's going to happen when you're when you're playing more and you're you're out there. I think he's also um, there's an element of having the job now that changes things for sure. I think when you you know when you are just kind of filling in and waiting for the guy to come back at times, then there's a um, sometimes you don't you just don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to give them a reason to take the job away from you and to give it back to the other guy. And uh, there is a you know quote unquote looking over your shoulder. Uh, factor that's there uh just naturally not not anything at him or directed at him or this situation just that's that's a natural thing and i think when you yeah. you know you have that confidence of hey it's your job now just go go play football i think that's going to help anybody i think last week and we'll we'll say the new mexico defense had trouble reading what you and Oli yeah. was doing on offense and play action really got him um and but it, but it was also set up by the a whole season of really running the ball well for the rebels Last week is sort of a culmination, and I don't think it's the end of it, but it was sort of a culmination of one of the off-season and fall uh, camp goals. I guess technically it was uh, August camp, not fall yet. But Brendan Marion said multiple times, he's the coordinator for UNLV, that he wanted to take a lot of deep shots. And he was saying this about Doug Brumfield. Basically, we want him to be aggressive and get the ball down the field and – uh, Marion said something to the effect of, I brought in all this speed so we can use it, right? And now you're starting to see it because Ricky White reached a level that's you know up there with any wide receiver in UNLV history. Um, you saw Dominic Jacinto transfer in from New Mexico State and Missouri show off his speed. We've seen DeJesus with his speed. We've seen uh, D'Angelo Irvin with his speed on a, a punt return. And... The goal is to land these deep shots, and they weren't landing as much as they wanted. Um, and I, to me, this is where the offense goes to the next level. And if they can execute more of these deep shots, they have a shot to win all of these games down the stretch. I don't know that they will, but think about what they've got set up right now. They've got an offense from a rushing standpoint that is a top 25 offense with a rotation of four backs. Uh, it's funny, after these games – I don't know how much you're into the box scores. Like, the last two games, I'll have to check back. But, like, it felt like, oh, man, the running game didn't really get going. And then you look after the game and you're like, wait, they got 156 on the ground and 159 on the ground in the last two games? Like, wait. <laughs> I mean, they were averaging 199. But, like, 150 is still working. And it was interesting. Uh, one, I think that is set up the deep shots in the play action. It was interesting. I, I 
asked Odom the other day about the deep shots and what's working so well. And then Caleb Herring jumped in behind me, and he's like, how important is it to get those deep shots completed and get them on film? You understand what he's saying there, right? Yeah, for sure. Show teams right? that you can do it. Yep. So now how do you defend this team? Good luck. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's it. But you can't, you can't stack the box. You can't load the box. You can't attack the run, which is what want to do. I mean, if you, you can do it. But you have to be weird, you know, leery that you're going to get beat over the top and, and know that that's a possibility. Yep. So you can't overcommit to it, and, and that should then enable them to get back to what they really want to do and, and just run the ball all over you. And trust me, I have immense respect for Wyoming. I think the football, the brand that Bowl plays, is unforgiving to uh, the opposition and his guys because it's not – I don't think that's an easy place to play. It's not an easy place to go to school. Um, Bowl does what he does, which is super physical, and pound the run game. And then every year after the season, Adam, there's like 15 transfers, and he's got to replenish, and he's like, okay, I'll just get more of those guys. And the last two times, you know, I was at the last two times they met, and they've only met like twice in the last, I think it's um, seven years, and the combined score of the games was 98-31. to 31. There was a 53-17 game up in Laramie where early fourth quarter I'm on the sidelines and I'm like, I think they can score 80. That's how physical they've been against UNLV to the point where it really did look like some of the UNLV squads are like, we, I, we don't want anymore. So this is a great test because UNLV has nutted up on defense. They've got a rotation of seven or eight good defensive linemen. They've got good linebackers. They've got big hitters in the defensive backfield, but if Wyoming goes out there and sets the tone, we'll see what happens, right? If you can't stop the run, if you're the Rebels, then what? You're in trouble. All right, coming back, we'll get to the grab bag. Cofield and Company presents Grab Bag. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Only on ESPN Las Vegas. Stick your hand in there, Dave. So, Runner Rebel season with Kevin Kruger opens tomorrow night. 7 o'clock tip, 6.30 with the pregame show live from the Thomas and Mac with John Sandler. And Curtis Terry, I'll be involved as well. Adam, you going out to the basketball game? Yeah, I think so. I'm trying to figure out how, to, how we can do both. Um, if I go... First period hockey, then basketball, then back to hockey for post game. Possibly, we'll figure it out. Nice. Yeah. Uh, what went on with Samford basketball? Not Stanford. No Samford. They had a big game against Purdue to open the season. As you know, a lot of you know smaller conference schools play play the big conference. They basically did a, a docu series, kind of leading up to the season, and it was really well done. Really fun behind the scenes. You get to know the team. In the last episode, was preparing their guy to do the jump ball against Zach Eady. Like, hey, we got to practice this. It's a big, big step to open the game. It's the first tip-off of the season. You got to try to beat Zach Eady. And here's the guy that's going to do it, our 5'7 backup point guard. So they did this whole thing of him training to try to beat Zach Eady. They they hyped him up. They were they were running him through some drills, trying to get better at the jump ball. And uh, it all culminated with a big scene where he actually beats their center in a jump ball and wins the right to do the opening tip against Zach Eady, and then it led up to opening night. Ball goes in the air. Kid goes in the game. They put him in just to do the jump, and he doesn't even jump. 
What? All of that hype for nothing. He just stood there and let Zach Eady win the tip. Oh, he didn't jump? No, but I thought it was really well done that they did this whole hype of like, hey, hey, fans, get ready. Just watch what he does when he gets up there against Zach Eady in the jump ball, and he didn't even jump. Nice. It was good content, though. Very good behind the scenes. I thought really well done in terms of humor and uh, getting people to know the team a little bit. Adam, you were a big fella. You are now. You were when you were a kid. You were about uh, this height when you were nine. Yeah. Um, did you ever jump center? No. <laughs> I like that he scoffs no. at it. I He's mean, like, I was I was a point forward from the beginning of time. Yeah, I was I was I was a I played the wing. Allergic to the paint. Uh definitely not. I mean, you know what? I'm sure there was some point I jumped in there and said, Oh, let me take it. But no, I don't think so. Come on. <laughs> okay. Ah, uh, Steve, you know, I That's never mean. got the opportunity to, you know, but I'm sure I could have yeah. rose to the occasion. What do you just mean? What do you, you mean? Know, you know I, I never. I, knew the answer. I never did. I was. That's what I was leading to. I never got to. You knew the answer already. I'm mad at this kid. Think. I'm mad at this kid from Sanford that he didn't jump. Yeah. Well, let's go through with it. What's he supposed to do? Jump. Show it us. Actually, it actually looked like what they, were, what they were trying to do is get Zach Eady to tip to a teammate in the front court in the corner and trap him, and that's what they did. They actually did a really good job off the jump to run a play to trap the guy that that you know possessed the ball. Uh, uh, and nothing came of it, but they—it was a good effort. Okay, I'll—I'll I'll change the question. Damon, did you were you ever around a kid who was five seven, five eight, five nine, who potentially could have won a tip against Zach Eady if Eady looked at him at that height and like didn't make much of an effort? Like he was such a leaper at that height, he could do it. Seven four, I think seven four is too tall. <laughs> it is. I actually I covered, and man, he might be younger than me. Um, I guess I guess technically he would be younger than me if I covered him. Yeah, um, I covered a guy who's now. This was in high school, but who's now with St. Joe's in Philly? You know what that is, right, Adam? Sure. Mark Bass, who was five seven, and in high school, I swore he had like a 42, 43, 44 inch vertical leap. I think if you put him in front of Zach Eady and Eady didn't know, he might actually be able to get it. Yeah, I don't know. That'd be that's so tough. He's just so tall, and he can actually jump. Zach I mean, you are, yeah. Yeah, you're counting. Yeah, he can. He's, he's pretty athletic. And you're counting on, like you said, you're counting on him just not jumping. Right. And like, oh, just looking at this guy, like, oh, come on. No, nah, if he jumps. Him. If he jumps a 5'7 guy with a 40-inch yeah. vertical, he's still going to have trouble. Yeah. But, I mean, I think he, he kind of even jumped against this kid yesterday. He's not going to lose a tip. No. That's what you're saying. Also, the kid, for what it's worth, uh, shaved his head for the moment. Uh, nice. Yeah, he was like, nice. i got to get ready. you got to get get more uh, more aerodynamic. Did they immediately take him out? I think they did. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd, I'd actually – this is a – it's a goofy topic. I'd actually like to look up numbers for his career, uh, how many tips uh, Zach Eady's actually lost at 7-4. Yeah. What do you think it is? It might be. It actually might be more than you think because I, I do think some teams. It's almost like deferring because the possession arrow. Sometimes you can, you know, you'd rather have that first jump ball, which is even the halftime jump ball, sometimes than you would win the tip. Okay, back in the back. Stick your hand in there, Dave. Demon headline: James Harden tricked us again. Clippers lost in his debut. <laughs> 
What do you mean? Just saying, man. James Harden trick y'all. Well, me too. Okay. Booty trick. Nobody thought he was going to be a savior. He said, I'm the system. I am the system. I'm not a system <laughs> player. I am the system. So awesome. And the Knicks have just been terrible. Julius Randle, you know, hasn't passed up a shot that he liked or didn't like all season. And lose to the Knicks? I was expecting some instant chemistry. Were you really or are you just saying that? I thought they were going to beat the Knicks last night, okay. yes. Because the Knicks have been so bad. Oh, no. He put it on his parlay. Didn't I, I, no, 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 no. I did stay away from it. <laughs> but I was thinking about it. Need to hit one of those soon. All right, that'll do it. Adam, thank you. Damon, thank you. They're uh, live in the Finley Toyota Studios. We're out here at Parkway Tavern leading up to the first Kevin Kruger radio show of the 23-24 season. There's $2 Miller Lights and giveaways during the show between 6 and 7. It's the Parkway Tavern in the district, so come on down. There's still some seats available. Crowd is building and a lot to look forward to. Uh, top recruit in the city is on the roster in DJ Thomas. A bunch of Ballyhoo transfers are in. Really good returnees as well. So 60 minutes of running Rebel basketball talk coming up right here on ESPN 1100. We'll just go with ESPN Las Vegas. How about that? Stick around.